Amen. Everybody can grab a seat. We doing okay? Are we doing okay? Yes. All right. So before we get started this morning, I want to take a break and just, uh, well, first I want to dismiss kids. Kindergarten through fifth grade, you guys can go to Children's Church. Um, we're going to celebrate something this morning um, because it's our fifth birthday, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, and so after this, we're going to have a huge barbecue lunch. Uh, if anybody leaves, never come back. I'm just saying. We have so much food, and I don't want to take any of it home. Uh, just as a show of hands, if you cooked barbecue for today, raise your hand. All right. It's, it's everywhere. There's barbecue. Come, Jake, did you cook barbecue? Are you lying in church right now? All right. Just want to make sure we're good. Uh, so we have so much food. Make sure you guys stick around as we just celebrate. We have four cakes. Count it one, two, three, four cakes. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, so stick around as we celebrate that. Um, but, but God has done so much. And I, I don't want us ever to think that this is anything that we've done or leadership's done. Um, God has been faithful every step of the way to help grow his church. This is not my church or the elder's church. Um, this is the Lord's church. He's building it. He's growing it. So we just get to celebrate all that he's done today. But there's been a few men and women outside of this gathering that have offered um, so much prayer, time, support, encouragement for us to keep going, to, to fight the good fight, to keep running the race. And I want to introduce you to one of those guys this morning, uh, Jojo Thomas. You can come up, Jojo. Um, he is the, uh, I don't know what you, uh, uh, he runs the Chattahoochee Baptist uh, Association. He's also Matt Thomas's dad, which is... Kind of cool. He's a little bit more clean cut than Matthew is. Um, but we just want to tell you thank you. Uh, I know that a lot of people don't know who you are, but if it wasn't for you and all that you've done for us, we wouldn't be here celebrating our fifth birthday. So uh, would you guys just thank JoJo? And JoJo has a little present for us, but I'll let him explain that later. Well, hey, I just want to say congratulations. You know, it has been a joy. And let me say this, uh, I love your pastor. And it has been a joy to watch what God has done through him. And it's been a joy to watch what God has done through the branch up until today and to think in terms of what God's going to do in the future. You know, sometimes when we get together in worship, we forget that we are part of a huge fellowship. All over the world, people are lifting up the name of Jesus, and we do that not in isolation. We do it with them. And sometimes, I think, in churches, we also forget that locally there are sister churches that are cheering you on. And so, uh, in Gabe talking about the gift, what he's referring to is he had asked our New Work Foundation recently, because you guys are growing, and you need to expand and have more chairs. So he had asked us to help out. And so I was going to bring a check today, but uh, the secretary mistakenly already mailed it, so it's already here. So I didn't bring a check. But let me just say, it is a joy to partner with the branch. It is a joy to see what God is doing here, and it is a joy to be a part of all that you guys are going to do in the future. So God bless you guys on this birthday. And Gabe, thank you. Thank you. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll get about 60 more chairs um, so that we can just keep growing and God can keep doing what he's doing. Uh, I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if I should really chase this rabbit, but uh, those what happened? <laughs> those chairs you're sitting in are like 45 bucks a piece. Yeah, a little ridiculous. So uh, we had to go find some money outside of ourselves to buy those chairs. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, let's go to Joshua 2. That stuff is, man, it's going to be one of those days. Um, 
let's go to Joshua 2. So we started last week teaching through the book of Joshua. Uh, and, for, and for a bunch of different reasons, but um, we want to see the redemptive history of God saving his people, which is what he does. So, so last week we went into exhaustive history of um, going from all the way from Abraham, God promising Abraham, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you a people. Um, we studied the story of Moses, how he grew up under Pharaoh's household and um, took his people, Pharaoh let my people go, uh, went into the wilderness, spent about a year getting the Ten Commandments, getting the law, establishing all of that, started started to pursue going into the promised land, sent out 12 spies. Um, Ten of them came back and said, there's there's no way. There's no way we can walk into the promised land. There's too many people. The battles are going to be lost. But two of them said, yes, we can. If God says we can do it, we can do it. But Moses decided and the rest of them decided to follow the 10. They did not go into the promised land. So for their disobedience, God said, no, 40 years. You're going to wander around this wilderness until that generation dies off. One of the two brave spies that came back and said, we can do this, was Joshua. So Joshua stuck Moses' right-hand man for those. For those, should I switch over to the mic before I get to preaching? All right, let's switch. Uh, so 40 years, um, Joshua stayed with Moses, walked with Moses, uh, led with Moses. And here's where we are. Moses has now died. Joshua has picked up the baton and said, okay, I'm, I'm going. I'm running. Um, I'm going to carry us into the promised land. So we see Joshua 1. He says, look, uh, we're going to be strong. Or God says, be strong and courageous. Go pursue that land. Go take it because your God is with you. Always. So that kind of takes us up to where we are at Joshua 2. But I have to give a pretty big caveat before we continue. Because I was thinking through and even, are, are y'all, do y'all follow Say What You Want Dahlonega? It is crazy. Uh, it, like, I love Dahlonega and I love everything about Dahlonega. But after you read that for a couple hours, you want to move out of Dahlonega, right? So I was reading this thing and I, I kind of, is any professional trolls in here? I want to be a troll. I want to create a fake Facebook account and just troll people hardcore. Because the pastor can't do that, right? But um, Devin Michaels can. Not that I already have a name picked out, but that would be the name. <laughs> so th- there's this guy. I'm not, I, no, I am totally throwing Jay. This just made me so mad. He's at Chick-fil-A. It's God's house, bro. Calm down at Chick-fil-A. At Chick-fil-A, and someone cuts him off to get into the line in front of him. So can you turn me down a little bit, Landon? Instead of like, hey, no big deal, or if that really offended me, go knock on the door and say, hey, you cut me off. What does he do? Take a picture, tag it on Facebook, say what you want to Lonega, rants about this person, like, oh, you got him, bro, like, you got him. But here, here's what I know, because I dealt with the same thing in kindergarten. Now, sorry that this person didn't grow up, but in kindergarten, I used to do the same thing, like, oh, they cut in front of me. But anything that attacks our worldview that everything is about me is an assault, and we have to attack it, Right? Every conflict that I have in my marriage is rooted in life should be about me. So you didn't do this to my standards, therefore I should be angry. Every conflict that you have with friends or relationships all is rooted in the fact that you believe that life should be about you. And if it's not, you you come on the attack, you come on the offensive, you get frustrated. So we take this worldview that everything is about me, everyone should treat me well, they should treat me how I want to be treated. If not, I'm going to attack them, I'm going to go after them. But if we're not careful, we read the Bible with the exact same language, that this book is about me. So I'm going to read this to see what this means for me. I'm going to read this with a worldview with lenses on that this is just for me. And church, if we read that, 
we read the Bible with that kind of intention, we're going to miss the whole point. The Bible is not about you. Are there applications in here? Yes. But the Bible is about God. Christianity is about God. Our faith is about what God is doing here and now from eternity past to eternity future. It's about the bigger story of God and his gospel. So when we read this, as we're going through the Old Testament, and really any book of the Bible, but especially the Old Testament, our tendency is to say, I'm going to be like David. I'm going to fight Goliath. I'm going to become strong and brave like him. I'm going to be like Joshua. Josh, God told Joshua to be strong and courageous, so therefore I need to be strong and courageous. But we spent a long time last week trying to prove the point, you can't be strong and courageous. The point of Joshua's story isn't that he can, it's that he can't, and he has to use the law, he has to use the strength of God to do it for him. So as we're studying this, as we're diving in, I just have to give this warning that this is not ultimately about you, this is about God and what God is accomplishing and in light of that, what does that mean for us? Sound good? We all on the same page? All right. So let me pray for us. Um, Joshua chapter 2. And we'll just kind of start working through it a little bit together. But let's pray. Now, Father, we're so grateful for this time that we can gather together. We're grateful that we can celebrate your faithfulness in our midst. And Father, we're so quick to dismiss the things of you. Uh, what you're working, what you're doing, what you're growing. And Father, we know that we should not be here apart from you. God, you are a good Father. You love us. You shepherd us well. You provide for us. You take care of us. So we just pray this morning that as we study your word, God, first and foremost, would you clear our minds? Anything that we walk into this morning, any sin that's in our heart, struggles, things that are causing anxiety in us, Father, would you just let those go? Would you remove those from us so we can see clearly your truth, your word, and your story and where we plug into that? So Jesus, only by your grace that we can pray, or thank you for what you're doing. Amen. So Joshua chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one somewhere around you. Uh, please take that. That's our gift. We want you to have God's word. So Joshua 2, pick it up in verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So Joshua 1, hey, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Go into the promised land. Go take it over. So Joshua gets the army ready to go, and God says, send spies into the land. Go check out, do reconnaissance, figure out what's going on in those walls. And it's just funny to me. I don't know if this is actually true, but Moses sent 12. Two came back and said, let's do it. Ten said no. So how many does Joshua send? Two. Just funny to me. Joshua going, we're not going to do this again. We're only sending two. We're going into the promised land. Um, so he sends two out to check it out um, and figure out what all is behind the walls of Jericho. Let's continue. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So we start to meet this girl Rahab and scripture is very clear, just throws it right out from the beginning. As soon as they get into Jericho, they go stay with a prostitute named Rahab. Now, if you're writing this story, if you're the author of this, would you pick out that you would lodge with a prostitute or a priest? If you're writing this story, is it a likely scenario that a prostitute would be the ones that take them in? I mean, doesn't that sound scandalous for the Bible? And there's a lot of theories behind that, right? I mean, one theory would be, like, of course that they could blend in there. Of course they could, t two men could walk into the house of a prostitute, and it wouldn't be much different, Right? 
Or maybe just because of where her location was, that they just walked in and they saw some guards walking through and they immediately jumped into the first door they saw, which might have happened to been Rahab's. And we can speculate a lot, but here's what's not speculation, that all of this was the sovereign hand of God. That there's no coincidence within the kingdom. So when they walked in, it's no coincidence that Rahab met them, welcomed them into their home, and the rest of what we see is not a coincidence at all. Because we see in the New Testament that Rahab makes it into the New Testament. Her story, her legacy, because of what's about to happen, continues on. The first place we see it is in Matthew 1, that we see that Rahab is actually in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what happened here is not some small, insignificant story, that Rahab makes it into the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1.5. But she also, and if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Hebrews 11 real fast. We're going to come back to Joshua. She also makes it into Hebrews 11, which if you're not familiar with Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is, is called the Heroes of Faith. It's the Hall of Fame as far as people in the Bible that have incredible faith. So we see that Rahab, a prostitute, makes it into the genealogy of Jesus and also makes it into the Hall of Fame of Faith. So Hebrews 11.35, I just want to read what the author of Hebrews says about Rahab real fast. Hebrews 11, I said 35, I meant 31. My apologies. Hebrews 11.31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to spies. So, spoiler alert, we're about to get into, it's faith that saved Rahab. It's faith that kept her from destruction. It's faith that kept her from death. It's faith that kept her in the genealogy of Jesus. It's faith that kept her in Hebrews 11. It's by faith. And listen, when we talk about faith, I know probably everyone in this room has some kind of sticker or t-shirt or is very familiar with the idea of faith. But if we don't study this, if we don't see the example of Rahab and spend a few moments in here dissecting what faith really looks like, our faith could be actually what damns us to hell. That if we don't have the faith in the correct thing, in the correct object, which is God, if we're subtly putting that faith within ourselves, as so many Americans do, that that faith that we think that we believe that we have is actually going to damn us. It's not going to save us. So we have to spend some time going over this. So if you're in Hebrews 11, go all the way up to Hebrews 11.1. 1, and it just gives a perfect definition of what faith is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we see that all that God has created, we believe that in faith. We put all of our faith, it's something that we cannot see, that we tangibly can't taste, but we're putting our faith in that God is the one that saves, God is the one that creates, God is the one that redeems. And we're doing that by faith. Can we actively prove that? Can we put it in front of you so you can touch it, smell it, feel it? No. Then it wouldn't be faith. So we have this idea that faith is what saves us. Faith is what redeems us. Faith is what reconciles us to God. And faith is what made Rahab famous. But was this faith of her own? Did she do this? Let's keep reading. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. 
And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And they went, out, they went the gate about the time it was closed at dark. The men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So let's just draw just a quick conclusion here. We have very clear Rahab is a prostitute. Now we also have that Rahab is a liar. Right? So, so this lady that is now famous in the hall of faith, her story so far is that she's a liar and she's a prostitute. Now, just cards on the table, would we see a liar and a prostitute and go, oh yeah, that's a woman of good faith? I mean, just think about it in our worldview when we think about what it looks like for someone who has faith or someone who deserves faith. It wouldn't be Rahab. How quickly do we, especially as believers, look at people and discount them because God can't, there's no way God could use them. There's no way that God could actually save that person and use them for his glory. They're too far gone. Don't, don't waste your time on them. They're just sinners. And if we're honest, that happens all the time. That happens all the time. That we can be, as Christians, the most judgmental people because we're so quick to forget that we were Rahab that we are Rahab, that we are lying, adulterous, murderers, thieves, all of us, guilty, sinners. But what we do is, is we come in and come on the other side. Well, look at me now. Look how clean I am. Look how great I am. I do all this, everything right. I don't do anything wrong. I'm, I'm good. So that we see the faith that saved us, but now our faith has slowly and subtly turned into, I save us. I redeem me. I keep myself going. I've got this. Ephesians 2, 8 puts it perfect, that we are saved by grace through faith, that our salvation was fully rooted in the grace of God, nothing else, not in your work, not in your effort, not in your good deeds. But we would think, right, that if, if God's going to come redeem, if God's going to use people for himself, if he's going to reconcile the world, he's going to do it through some really stand-up good people. But if we remember any that we covered through the whole book of Luke, that is just not true. So, so we see clearly Mark 2.17 puts it this way. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So God is saying, no, when, when I'm coming, when I'm pursuing, when I'm saving people, I'm pursuing the sinners. I'm pursuing the ones that need a physician. I'm pursuing the ones that need help. So if we posture ourselves as ones that have everything figured out, that we're good, that we don't need much help, then we're going to end up like the Pharisees. We're going to end up like the Sadducees, like the religious ones that had everything figured out. I don't need a Savior. I don't need any help. And in that, we're putting all of the faith in ourselves that we can save us, that we can sustain us, that we have what it takes but we see the harsh words that Jesus gives the Pharisees at the end of the New Testament, at the end of the Gospels, that you're like whitewashed tombs. 
that you look pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. See, here's, here's what I mean. If we don't understand the true definition of faith, if we don't wrestle with where faith comes from, what faith looks like, we can make our entire lives through this world and die and have never actually put our faith in Christ, never actually been redeemed. Again, we see this in Jesus' words. When we get to heaven, we'll say, Lord, Lord, we did all of this in your name. And what's he going to say? Depart from me. I, I don't know who you are. I've never known you. What you thought you were doing in my name, you were doing in your faith because it made yourself feel better and look good in front of crowds and look good in front of people. But I've never actually known you. So if we don't get faith right, if we don't understand where it comes from, this could be a damning message that faith came to a lying prostitute. Faith came to someone that no one would have picked for their varsity church team. The, the genealogy of Jesus Christ has a lying prostitute in it. And that should be celebrated. That should be good news. Because I, I know me. I know the sins in my heart. I know the things that I wrestle with. And if God can save Rahab, I know that God can save me. If we walk into this room heavy laden with sin that we just think that, that totally disqualifies us from being a Christian, good, it does. That is the point of the gospel. But if you walk in here thinking that you're okay, that, that yeah, maybe Jesus can help you here and there, but, but overall you're okay, church, I'm, I'm fearful for you because you've missed the point of what faith does. So let's keep reading in Rahab. Pick it up in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, who you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, for there was no spirit left in any man because of you, the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. So we have this prostitute that lives in a wicked city. And there's no telling the sin that she's in. And did you check for the last verse of this, verse 11? He is God in the heavens above and on the earth. We see a clear explanation of faith. Here's what we don't see. We don't see Rahab saying, but look at me. There's nothing in this paragraph, there's nothing in this statement of faith drawing any attention to her, any proud about, look what I've done, look what I have to offer. All of it is we've heard, we know, and he is God. That's faith. Has she seen him? Can she touch him? Has she talked to him? No, but she sees the work of God all around her and goes, that, that is him. Your God is God. So it's, it's important for us to determine the steps of faith that we clearly see here. And, and it's littered all throughout Scripture. So, so the church has kind of adopted it. That we say what a disciple is. We say it's someone that knows, believes, and obeys Jesus in all walks of life. That's how we define a disciple. And so we see clearly those three steps here. We see that she knows. I mean, she starts off this monologue going, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And then at the end, she declares, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That she knows that he is God. 
She knows that their God is the Lord God on Most High. She knows it from a very conceptual way. She determines, here's what he's done. He split the river for you to come. He's already helped you defeat other wars. He is God. She knows it. But if knowledge ends, is that true faith? Or does true faith lead to something? So she knows it, but she also believes it. And here's where I wish there was a better word for this. Because believe oftentimes has this emotive character to it, right? I mean, we always liken it to love. Yes, there is a love there. We talked about yesterday, my wife, uh, we've been married for 10 years now, almost 10 years now. Um, but 17 years ago yesterday, I asked her on our first date. So we're sitting in Chick-fil-A drive-thru, because that's what we do, right? Sitting, and I said, hey, you know what happened 17 years ago? And she started getting teary-eyed, and it was like, oh yeah, I'm the best husband, because I remembered it. But truth be told, I just opened Facebook, and it said, hey, 17 years ago this happened. I'm like, yes. Facebook is the ultimate wingman. Free didn't know that till right now, spoiler alert. I just, I shouldn't have done that. Now all my credit is just gone out the window, right? But here's what we do. We have this emotion that comes with love. But you know the fact is, I'm going to love my wife whether I feel like it or not. Because I stood before Jonathan Wilson, our pastor, I stood before congregation, and I stood before God and made a covenant with her. There's no emotion in that covenant, that I am yours forever and always. So we get to this belief, yes, it is a motive. Yes, it's something we feel, but we shouldn't over-exaggerate that, that the knowledge leads to the belief, it leads to the emotion, the feeling there. And for Rahab, we see that it's fear. In this declaration of faith, she's fearful. She goes, I, I know who your God is, and, and I'm, I'm afraid. Now look, this is where I think we get a little dangerous in this belief category. Because if we truly know who a holy God is, and we think that our sin doesn't matter, we don't know who a holy God is. When we know who holy, righteous, just God is, and we truly know our sin and wretched heart, that should terrify us. That no one can walk into the presence of a holy God covered in sin and not worry about it. So as Rahab is understanding the knowledge of God, that ultimately leads to a fear of God. We've seen how much God has protected you, how much favor he has on you. I know I'm just a lying prostitute. I'm terrified. That our sin is in a, is in a direct attack against a holy God. And that belief led to fear. So not only did she have knowledge of God, but she believed in it. She felt the deep depravity of her sin in light of a holy God. And that led to obedience. That led to her saving these men, rescuing these spies because they're God's men. Now, even though she did it through lying, she did it through deception. And we don't discredit that. But in her heart, that's all she knew how to do, to be obedient to God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that faith shows itself in the whole personality. So it shows itself in our knowledge, yes. It shows itself in what we believe and what we feel about God, yes. But it also shows in our obedience. We clearly see that this faith changed the way that Rahab lived. But if I'm honest, in the American idea of Christianity, we go backwards. Instead of no, believe, obey, we go obey, believe, no. I'm just going to do the right thing because this is what's expected of me. 
I have no real knowledge of God. I have no real belief in him, but I know that I have to obey him. So I'm going to obey him. I'm going to do all these rules. I'm going to follow all these things. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to join an MC, go to DNA. I'm going to stick around to this picnic. Not that I really want to eat barbecue, but I'm afraid if I don't, God's going to be unhappy with me. So I have to obey. I, ha- I have to do this. So the obedience is not rooted in the knowledge of who God actually is. It's rooted in the guilt of what you would feel if you don't obey. Now listen, take a zoom out real quick. Isn't that putting faith in yourself? That you have enough in you to obey God. So there's no faith in God in that process. There's only faith in you. That I can obey him enough to please him. But I don't actually have to know him. No relationship would work that way. No marriage would work that way. There's no true knowledge of that spouse, that no true knowledge of that partner. If all you're going to do is obey, you're, you're going to be out before you know it. All of us have that temptation. It's, it's moralism. It's follow these rules. It's legalism. Do, do what I'm doing. And, and why do you think that we as Christians have such a massive reputation for hypocrisy? Because it's not rooted in the knowledge of God or the belief of God. It's rooted in the obedience. You need to do this. You need to get back in church. You need to follow all these rules and regulations. Well, you're not. You're not doing any of those things. Doesn't that make you a hypocrite? So if we lead with obedience instead of leading with the knowledge of God, we're not walking in faith. We're walking in pride. We're walking in sin. John Piper puts it this way. Faith is a very childlike, dependent, needy, hungry, thirsty, desperate, bankrupt response to God's glory. Let me read that again. Faith is a very childlike, dependent, needy, hungry, thirsty, desperate, bankrupt response to God's glory. So true faith is never rooted in what you can do. True faith is rooted in I am a sinner that can do nothing. And I'm pleading with the Holy God to rescue me. That is what true faith looks like. But we skip over faith, right, and go straight to obedience. If I'm doing this and this and this for God, I must have true faith. True faith does what's difficult not to earn salvation, but in response to salvation. True faith does what's difficult not to earn salvation, but in response to salvation. So Rahab put her entire life on the line, not to try to earn God's favor to earn salvation, but a response of she had her faith placed in God and God alone. So let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me that the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you would also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly with you and faithfully with you. Because of her faith in God, God has spared her life. Now, church, we need to be very clear on this. Because of her faith in God, God has spared her life. If she would have turned on these men, and put more faith in herself, that I know Jericho's going to go down, but I can get myself out, her life would not have been spared. So we see this very clear dichotomy here. That Because of her faith in God, God spared her life. But if she were to try to take this into her own hands, 
if she would try to control and manipulate the situation like so many of us do, her life would not have been spared. So we just have to wrestle with if, if faith is it, if faith is the root of our salvation, are we truly putting our faith in God who spares our life? Are we trying to manipulate, control, and take advantage of the situation so that we think we can get out alive? Because those two faiths are totally different. One leads to glory. The other leads to damnation. There's no in-between. So she sends them away. She lowers them down. She tells the, the Jericho police, basically, go this way. She sends her guys a different way. But let's pick it up in verse 17 because there's a very significant thing we're about to see. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath that you have made us swear. Verse 18, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house the father, mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Verse 19, then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath that you've made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now we just have to pay special attention here because Joshua knows what's taking place. We covered last week um, the Passover. So when the plagues were coming to Pharaoh because he would not let the um, Israelites go out of slavery in Egypt, Passover was invented. That God said, listen, Pharaoh, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill the firstborn of all men or all sons born in your kingdom. Pharaoh called his bluff, so he told the slaves, he told Israel, listen, uh, slaughter a lamb, cover the threshold of your door in his blood, and I will pass over. But if that's not there, your firstborn is dead. So we see, this is why we still celebrate Passover today, we see that Joshua is a firstborn, so he understands at a real level, if God would not have saved us, that that blood would not have been covered over our threshold, I myself would not be here. So when these spies come back and say, Joshua, here's what we've done. Um, this, this prostitute, this liar, she let us in. She protected us. She saved us. She's going to tie a scarlet cord on her door, on her window, so that we'll see her and spare her life. He knew what that meant, that God's faithfulness will protect her. That as we see just a few, uh, few chapters before in Exodus, how God's passed over, how the blood of the lamb covered their sins, we see this scarlet, this deep, red like blood saying this is mine so when God comes to access his wrath over Jericho he's going to pass over he's going to protect those behind the scarlet cord and that is just a foreshadowing of what we'll see with Christ that true faith if we are true in faith that when the judgment comes when the wrath of God comes on sinners like us that we have that scarlet cord wrapped around our heart that his wrath will not come to us because it will pass over us. And it has nothing to do with door, or blood on the threshold. It has nothing to do with the scarlet cord. Those are foreshadowings. It has everything to do with the final death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what we get to celebrate. And that's nothing we could do. The root of faith it is not up to us. It's not part of us. It's not in us. We're naturally, all of us, sinners, wicked, going our own way. 
And if we don't have that blood, if we don't have that scarlet rope, if we don't have the blood on the threshold, that we would pay for our sin. But because the holy God has made a way, he passes over that for us. But, but let me maybe say one last thing. As we talk about faith, I would be remiss to skip over this part. I read earlier Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith. But, but let me finish the next few words. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Let me read it one more time. You are saved by grace through faith. And this faith is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. That Rahab knows that even the faith to believe, even the circumstances that led her to her belief in God were solely from God. That even the faith to believe comes from him, because if it didn't, if we could come up with our own faith enough to believe in God, then he addresses it. That we'd be boasting all over the place. Oh, you had to depend on God to give you your faith? No, I created mine. Had a little bit of creatine, had a little bit of workout, I was ready to go. I created my own faith, I've got this. And we know we would do it because we brag about the dumbest stuff. So even the faith to believe is a gift from God. So if we go back and we read this story with the overarching theme that this is God's redemptive work, it was God that led them into the wilderness. It was God that led them into the promised land. It was God that led the two spies right to Rahab that brought them in, that allowed the, the uh, Jericho police, the guards, not to kill Rahab on the spot. It was God that allowed them to hide. It was God that allowed them to come down and run back to Joshua. It was God that allowed them to hide the scarlet cord in the window. It was God that redeemed Rahab. It wasn't Rahab's work. Rahab was a prostitute and a liar. And this should bring so much joy to our hearts, church. Because here's what I know. There's, there's two groups of people in here. There's the group that gets it. That you are self-aware. That you've come to grips with your sin. Who you really are. That left to your own devices. If it's just up to you, you're pursuing sin all the time. That everything about you is sin. And you understand it and you feel it. And so when we worship and when we sing we rejoice because we know that God has given us the faith to believe. We know that Christ has came and rescued us and redeemed us because we could never redeem ourselves. That we've tried probably in middle school to go for a whole week without sinning and made it 17 seconds. That we know that if it's not for Christ, we cannot be redeemed. We cannot have the faith to believe. But there's this other group. And straight off the bat, you are exhausted. You are weary. You are tired. Because you're working so hard to keep up this reputation that you have. You're working so hard to keep this faith going in you that I have what it takes, that I'm good enough, that I can't let anyone see me so I can't really open up about who we are or who I am. Because if I do, people are going to doubt if I'm actually saved or not. So I have to keep this image on me. I have to look good, smell good. All of this because if anyone actually knew, what would they think of me? You're exhausted because you're putting your faith in yourself. And that is damning faith, church. That is not salvific faith. We have to answer to that. We have to talk about that. 
We have to press into that because we live in a culture that cultural Christianity, just say the right things, go to church every now and then if you own a Bible, you're good. is a realistic thing for us. And all of that faith is in yourself. It's putting it on you. So have you sat and wrestled with who you really are? An adulterous liar, full of sin, full of pride, full of envy. And have you thought about what God did to save you, to redeem you, to bring you out of that life, to give you the faith to believe in him? Or are you still pretending? Are you still trying to do it? White knuckle effort. You've got this. Keep it up. Don't let anyone see you sweat. Here's what I would plead with you. That concerns me way more than me knowing who you really are. I don't want anyone to walk out of this gathering space this morning, this gym, before they set it up for pickleball and think that, hey, I've got this figured out. I have enough faith in me to save myself. Be true, church. Be honest with your sin. Because if God can use an adulterous liar, God can definitely use you. But you have to be honest, forthright with who you are and who you're not. That you are a sinful, wretched human being. But you have a God that loves you and is crazy about you and is pursuing you right now. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to keep this front going. God is ready to give you faith to believe, but you've got to quit trying on your own and actually put your faith in him. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, we've got to wrestle with that. We've got to ask ourselves that. We've got to put ourselves in the life of Rahab. Are we truly an adulterous liar that's putting everything we own on the lap of God, we're going, if you can use any of this, if you can use me, do it because I truly believe in you. Are we trying to justify ourselves in front of God, saying, but I, but I do this well, but I've got this, but, I, but I'm a good person, right? So Paul says, I'm going to boast all the more in my weaknesses, because when I'm weak, Christ is strong. So Jesus tells us that when we take communion, we use this time to examine our hearts, Examine our hearts. This is for the baptized believer to go and to remember all that Christ has done for us. This isn't just because we're good, that that we've got this figured out, that we have the faith to believe. We're remembering that because all that Christ has done, we can now believe. We can be new creations. So I'm asking you, are you a new creation? Has God given you the faith to believe because you've realized who you are in the presence of a holy God? Or is this a show? Are we pretending because we don't want to let our guard down? So after we've examined our hearts, communion will be open. The elders will be over there. Uh, If anyone wants to pray, we'll have a couple ladies over there. If anyone wants to pray and talk through this. But here's my final plea. Church, stop pretending. There's too much on the line for you to pretend like you have faith when you don't. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the example of Rahab in the scriptures. Father, we see clearly that you pursued her, that you came after her, that you made a way when there was no way. 
Father, we see that, that you come to rescue and to redeem us. But like Rahab, we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to acknowledge that this is who we are. When we know our sin in front of a holy God, that's where faith comes from. So let us not be so quick to jump on the obedience train to try to earn your love or earn your approval or earn your grace, Father, because we can't earn any of that. Let us be crystal clear about who we are, that we are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Let us cry out like a child cries out for her parents, knowing that we can't feed ourselves, that we can't clothe ourselves, we can't do anything on ourselves. Apart from you, we are nothing. And you did not leave us in that state. But you sent, just like you spent, sent the spies for Rahab, you spent Christ for us to rescue us, to redeem us. And we have the scarlet rope tied around our hearts, meaning we are yours. That when you come to condemn the world, you're going to rescue us. So there's, there's something to worship. There's good news in that, that you are a good, holy God, that, that even though we deserve death, you have saved us and you've redeemed us. So let us not pretend. Let us not put faith in ourselves. Let us not worry about what people would think if they actually knew us because God does know you and he's crazy about you. But do you know him, church? Do you know his holiness? Do you know that he cannot celebrate your sin or be any part of it? Is there fear welling up in your heart because of what you deserve in light of a holy God? That's where faith is born. And it's not a fear trick. It's not manipulation. It's truth. But that's not where our story ends. That you're a God that rescues and redeems. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, Father, would you speak clearly to us? Would you convict us if there's sin, if we're trying to do this on our own, if our faith is not placed in you, but if it's placed solely on us, would you convict our souls? Would we cry out and repent from that? And if we have, would we take communion with a joyful heart, knowing that we are incredibly loved and provided and taken care of because you are a good, holy God. So church, the, the band's going to pick a little bit. We're going to continue into worship. And whenever you're ready, we have three or four communion tables set up over here. But after you've prayed through and examined your hearts, we ask you to take communion. If you have any questions or want prayer, the elders will be over there.